0: Joining us right now on the phone, Hector Vergara, Executive Director of Manitoba Soccer Association. Hector, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Good, thanks for doing this, I appreciate it. World Cup starts in Qatar, I guess officially on Sunday, correct? Correct. And Canada is going to be there, I'm not uh, breaking any news here, most people know that, but this is really exciting, explain why this is such a big deal.
1: Well, when you haven't been to the show in 36 years, it becomes a big deal. Um, you know, that's, it's been a long time since we've seen our national team representatives at the World Cup. Um, and uh, and in, on top of that, it's been a very interesting qualification for Canada in the sense that, um, you know, we have very strong uh, teams in the confederation of CONCACAF in, in Costa Rica, Mexico, United States, um uh, Panama. Those are all very strong teams, and Canada hasn't been able to crack it uh, in order to get to the to the World Cup until now. Uh, and not only did we make it to the World Cup this time, we qualified in first place, by uh, which, which nobody expected. To be quite honest, I don't think anybody expected. So, uh, at the end of the day, the road to the World Cup has been fantastic for Canada, and uh, I think they're they're preparing very well um, in getting ready for. <coughs> excuse me, what's going to be. A, A fantastic opportunity for them to get it, hopefully, into the second round.
0: And what's different this time? I mean, obviously, better players, I guess, a better team. Those are the obvious uh, reasons. But why is Canada there this time after almost four decades of not being there?
1: Well, I think part of it is that Canadians' team learned how to play in CONCACAF. One of the important things about CONCACAF is a very difficult there are difficult countries to play in uh, if you go to Honduras to qualify and if you go to Costa Rica, those environments are very complicated um, you know having having people in your hotel room all night long party making noise in order for you not to be able to get rest and sleep the night before the game those are the kind of things that you encounter when you go to South America and you go to Central America um, and uh, and you know playing in the middle of the day at uh, uh, in a in, uh, Azteca Stadium uh, when it's uh, 2,600 meters above sea level and uh, it's uh, 30 degrees outside. outside. it these are, the, these are difficult environments for the teams to qualify, and, and I think that the coach, John, in this case, has prepared the team for those type of situations, and they learn how to deal with that. They learn also, you know, the Canadian player normally was a very nice player and uh, very polite, just like Canadians, right? Uh, and... Um, and now uh, the, the Canadian players are not stepping back. They're 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 responding to uh, to aggression. They're responding to uh, how tough the tackles are. They they themselves tackle harder. So all of that combined with what you mentioned, better players, um, lots of players that are now having a lot of experience in Europe. Um, all of that you put all that together, and the motivation that John has been able to create within the team. He's a very very good speaker and knows a lot about the game, and and therefore all of those ingredients put together have allowed canada to to qualify to qualify for the world cup and i think he'll use the same ingredients there to be able to convince and and prom- and uh, motivate the team to be able to, to perform well
0: and what should canadian soccer fans expect from this team what's a realistic outcome for canada at this world cup
1: no i think that they can actually make it to the round of uh, of 16 in other words get get past the uh, the group stage, um, they have uh, they have the the quality in their in their, te- in their team. I mean, some of the you look at the goalkeeper in 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 Milan, and then uh, you'll see some of the excellent saves that he made against Mexico, for example, and the reactions that he had in those uh, situations to to make sure that the Canada won those games. Um, you, you know, you have experienced people in the midfield with Jonathan Osorio, uh, Hutchison. These people have got lots of experience in, in MLS. They've got lots of experience in international games. And you know, you, when you have uh, Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David doing so well um, in Europe, uh, there are there are players there that can that can put you over the top and, and make sure that you do well. And you know, you're not playing easy countries. You know, Belgium and Croatia, are very experienced nations. Croatia. It's uh, been done very well in the last few World Cups, and, and Belgium is also a very strong nation. Uh, but I think that Canada has proven that they can play against the top countries in the world, in Costa Rica, and Mexico, and United States, for example. That's not; those are, those teams are not easy to play in our confederation. So they got the experience that uh, that is needed to be able to to deal with, uh, with with teams in the World Cup, and and the World Cup environment is different. Um, Club competitions are different in our confederation. Even the World Cup qualifying is different in our confederation. The environments are, like I said before, very difficult. But yet, the World Cup is a very different environment. It's a it's a very friendly environment. Uh, even the even the players behave differently. The preparation of the competition, you'll, the Canada will have a, a, a FIFA instructor. Uh, um, go speak to them about the loss of the game, and they'll have them. Uh, they'll be they, they, what they call a team arrival meeting. The, the team will arrive in, in Qatar, and, and they will have someone go speak to them, and they will speak to the coach and staff, and and what the expectations of the players are, so that the players are actually behaving better, uh, and that's the benefit to Canada because I think uh, Canadians. Uh, I I don't think we'll have an opportunity to to lose a player because of, of behavior. Uh, and so that's, those are all important elements as when you when you're dealing with uh with a short tournament like this um to make sure that you have all your your key players on the, on the field at all times uh, and the behavior attitude is important so the environment is different and i think that john is the kind of person that uh, will motivate them in the right way to ensure that that they, uh, they they do well and and i think they will i think they have uh they got to get a draw against Morocco, and and, and, well, I think they have to beat Morocco, sorry, and they have to get a draw against Belgium or Croatia to to be able to get enough points, I think, to the next round. But I think they can do it.
0: Hmm. And, Hector, talk a little bit about the growing popularity of soccer here at home at all levels and what that has meant now to Canada having a team at the World Cup. And then if Canada has a good World Cup, what does that mean to the sport here?
1: Well, it's it's unfortunately, as uh, as you know, we've been hit with two years of pandemic, uh, and people say that the pandemic's still not over. But uh, that has had a huge impact on registration of players across the country. We've all suffered the same. Um, not only has this affected players, it affected you know the number of coaches that have come back to the game and the number of referees that have come back to the game. So we're we're talking about a World Cup, where Canada is participating at a time when we're going through a pandemic. So it's difficult to measure exactly. Uh, you know how many of those players that are going to be involved in the game are coming back because of uh, of uh, being over with COVID or because they're motivated by the World Cup team being in the World Cup. So it's difficult to measure, but the importance of having a team in the World Cup is the fact that you you start to create heroes and and, uh, and role models. Uh, you know, for us locally, we have Desiree Scott, who's done so well at, uh, at the women's in the women's national team. So. Mm-hmm having those individuals at that level motivates the young player to say, look, I have an opportunity um, to to become a world-class player. I have an opportunity to compete at the highest level of the sport. Uh, And there's examples within this team where, you know, and and they posted on Twitter, a lot of them have posted on Twitter already, about the fact that they come from little communities within Ontario, within Quebec, et cetera, et cetera. And and they were just a mini soccer player at one point in their life as well. And they've grown through the game, through the clubs, and now they're playing uh, to represent Canada uh, at the World Cup. So it, a dream can can be a reality for a lot of these players. So having team in the World Cup affects how players in our grassroots development and, and, and competitive competitions uh, will look at having their opportunity to potentially live their dream as well. So it is very important for, for everyone to to have these heroes so that we, um, we look up to them and, and follow their, their footsteps.
0: It's going to be fun to watch Canada at the World Cup. Hector, thanks for this. No problem. Take care. Thank you for having us. This is our 2, the second hour of Connecting Winnipeg. Hal Anderson with you here on CJOB. We continue uh, to play your request your musical request bumper music your favorite road trip tunes 204 780 6868 send us a text and uh, we'll try and get it on now i know for a fact uh, that this song here tom petty running down a dream is on the list of our next guest when it comes to favorite road trip songs eric alper musicologist eric good morning
2: Good morning. I'm so glad I'm not driving for this segment. I think I would be getting a lot of speeding tickets, and then I would just charge it back to CJOB.
0: <laughs> you know what? Uh, Brett McGarry, one of our uh, co-hosts on the start this morning on the morning show, said the same thing. Uh, he said, "I'm not really a classic rock guy, but when I do play classic rock when I'm driving, I I tend to get fired up." And yeah, speed. I guess that's maybe one of the the negatives that can come from the music you're listening to. Uh, while you drive. Get to the rest of your list here, because I asked you to put a bit of a top five together. So that's the top of your list, Running Down a Dream, Tom Petty. Are these in any particular order,
2: Eric? No, I I think that's just one of those classic songs that when um, Tom Petty released this song, it just seemed like it hit all the right notes. It sounded classic rock, even when it was brand new. It Mm -hmm. went well above the average heart rate that i have and that's really how you can figure out what's a good driving song or not is anything that kind of matches your heartbeat at about 80 beats a minute but anything higher than that then you start to get into the oh this is a really good song to cruise down the road with so (laughs) yeah that has to be at the top of my list
0: that's interesting so you think that uh, because it matches a song's beat matches up to our heartbeat that that makes it a good song to drive to
2: yeah, because you know, there's there's some ballads like say your song or Daniel by Elton John that's um, more ballady, and it doesn't seem to be on a good driving song list. But when you start to kind of feel that the beat is going faster than your heartbeat or then your mind starts to race a little bit you start to get a little bit excited you start to you know put down that you know, the, med- the pedal to the metal so to speak and then all of a sudden your audio system everything just sounds that much better the people that you're with are that much better you know and so um, you know to keep your eyes on the road is really tough when you start to have a fast song um, especially in the rock and roll era
0: sure all right give us the rest of the tunes on your list here
2: yeah the other one that i have on the list is when the streets have no name by u2 from the joshua tree although that it starts off really really slow with just uh, a kind of keyboard once the edges guitar comes along and it just drives the rest of the song once the the bass and the and the drums come in and it just doesn't let up for six minutes so that's that to me has to be on the top of the list All right. Um, And then the next one I have is Tears for Fears Everybody Wants to Rule the World because it has that shuffle. It's got that kind of shuffling along. Um, there's so many different parts of the song. There's the verse, there's the chorus, there's two guitar solos, there's a long keyboard solo in there, too. Um, so the, the, the song keeps changing, at least in terms of the instrumentation, but it's still pretty constant throughout all of it. So that has to be on the list, too, along with Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. I mean, if there's ever a song where you feel like, You know, the highway is yours. You can go anywhere you want. Baby, just pack up the rest of the car and let's just go. (laughs) We can drive to another province. Who's stopping us? That's, you know, that to me, that's what it means. It's like you can shed all the responsibilities in the world. And then for it, you know, because it's CJOB, American woman by the guess who, especially Mm. with the beginning part of it where Burton Cummings starts to, you know, spell out the alphabet for American woman. And it just. (laughs) It crawls, and then all of a sudden, when Randy Bachman's, you know, chunking guitar comes along, it's just nonstop.
0: Yeah. Boy, we're getting some great, uh, like, uh, Born to be Wild just came in, which is a Love great uh, tune. Yeah. yeah. Hot Rod, Lincoln, uh, and then, you know, it's all genres of music, right? Rock, country. Uh, I tend to, if I uh, am in control of what musically I'm listening to when I'm driving, I kind of like the 80s. My wife, not so much, but I I like throwing on some some 80s stuff. We've had several people say that, you know, songs like Life is a Highway, On the Road Again, songs that actually talk about driving, for them, those are great road trip songs.
2: Yeah, and it has to be familiar to you. There's a lot of people who tend to get lost in newer music or music that you don't already know yet and your mind starts to wander because your brain thinks I need to just concentrate on the road and the lights and where I need to go but at the same time there's it's comprehending the music that you've never heard before. That's why these classic rock songs continue to sell year after year after year is because they're familiar to us. Um, and you know, for for a time, you know, look, there's three stresses that people have mostly in their life. Death, taxes, and being in control of the radio. And so the third one, I think, is probably the most important when you're music fed, is you want to make sure that everybody is happy with your choices.
0: Yeah, you and I have talked many times about, you know, the importance of music in our life, and I started the show today talking to Greg Mackling, uh, co-host mm-hmm. of The Start. He is with our voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Derek Taylor, on the road heading to Regina right now, and he was talking about a road trip that he took with his two boys and his dad this summer, and his dad was playing some music, and then his dad would tell stories about a song, or, you know, back, oh, first time I heard this song, and it it, it music is such a, it, it's such a great gathering point, for family, friends, and family and friends of different ages and uh, different backgrounds.
2: It's the great... It's a great equalizer, and I bet you if you ask Greg if you played one of the songs that he remembers on that drive, he will tell you everything about that moment. He will tell you, he'll probably remember what he was wearing, what his dad was wearing, what they talked about, where they went, you know, certain signs or gas station and what the prices were. Music has this way of just bringing you back right into those memories where those moments hit for you, and that you realize that this is a real important time in my life, and this is the soundtrack to that. That's why Alzheimer patients and doctors and the health industry love to play music to people that are suffering from Alzheimer's, because if they don't remember things that you and I may take for granted, like kids' names or where they are, you play something from their past, it goes right back into those memories. It's a, it's, it's, Look, music is medicine, always has and always will be.
0: Yeah. Very well said. You know, I'm getting old. I'm in my late fifties, 50. I am. I'm 58. I'll be 59, uh, in the spring. And I, I now, and I've always had pretty eclectic musical tastes. I've always appreciated all forms of music, all types of music might not be, you know, what I'm really into, but I've always appreciated a good artist or a, or or a cool song. I've worked. I've worked just about every possible format in radio, country, rock, now talk. Um, but there are some times when I see a band or an artist or a song on TV, and I go, "What the heck is that all about?" H- help me with this, Eric. I'm getting old. I'm. I'm becoming my parents and my grandparents. How do I stay? How do I stay cool when it comes to music?
2: That's okay, cause, but there's still a lot of stuff out there. You just may have to dig a little bit deeper. Like, if you love Bruce Springsteen, um, Sam Fender from the U.K. has a saxophonist, um, a, 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 a horn section. He sings songs about being a teenager. It's it's so, the line between Springsteen and this kid, Sam Fender, is so straight and narrow, that he's like my new find of this year, even though he's been around for a couple of years. So sometimes you have to you know, rely on Spotify or YouTube to you know, kind of take you down that rabbit hole of like, look, if you love Eurythmics, just keep playing Eurythmics. And Spotify will say, if you love this, then you may love this. And that's how I find a lot of the new music um, is just kind of letting the algorithm take over. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: And how is the music business right now? We're starting to see a lot more concerts now. Obviously, uh, you know, the music business has changed. Do do groups and artists even put out albums anymore? Uh, What's the state of the music industry right now, Eric?
2: It it depends on who you ask. If you ask Drake or Ed Sheeran... um Pretty great. Um, but it always has been like that. The, the, the top 1% has always made about 80% of the money that's available. If you ask Canadian rock bands, for instance, um, that are independent, it's awfully tough out there. You know, there's talk of a reception Um, There's talk of of still COVID out there in a lot of different places in a big way, even though COVID never went away. People are hanging on to their money longer. Maybe they don't see going out as any form of entertainment, whether it's concerts or sports. Um, Those are big ticket items now. And so um, if you're independent, it's really tough out there trying to compete with 100,000 songs each day that are being uploaded onto music streaming services like Apple or Spotify when you're just starting out. when you're an independent artist, your competition is not another artist from Winnipeg. It's the Beatles. It's the Stones. It's all those artists that you and I just talked about. And that's real tough when you're first starting out because there's not a lot of money in streaming. So you have to make it on, on the road. Um, and when people aren't going out, that makes it doubly tough. So it depends on who you ask. But it's a much better position now that we know what everything is rather than two and a half years ago when we didn't even know if we were going to make it to the end of the year.
0: Right. Eric, I always appreciate having you on. I love talking music with you. You're always so quick to get back to me when I send you an email, and sometimes <laughs> my ideas are a little out there, like today, your favorite road trip tunes, but you always get right back to me. What's your website? Is it thatericalper.com? Com. That's the one. Dot yep. com. Yeah, yep. I was close. Good. Eric, thanks. Talk soon.
2: Thanks so much, Hal. We'll talk soon.
0: So on Mondays at 11.30, I've got in the business we call it a benchmark. It's something that happens every uh that day every week at that time so at 11 30 on mondays uh global news anchor lisa dutton joins us on thursdays carolyn Claassen. looking forward to chatting with carolyn again on thursday and then uh, cyrus dirks and dr cyrus on fridays and uh so i'm i'm adding something new here on tuesdays high tech tuesday uh, so right after 11 30 it's a chance to talk technology because there are just every day there are great stories about tech that I think we uh, should get into. So David Papp is joining us here, technology expert, davidpapp.com. That's P-A-P-P, two P's at the end, davidpapp.com. David, good morning. Hey, good morning, Hal. Thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, because I've heard advice from experts like you on both sides of this, when your data gets held for ransom uh, and the, the bad guys, the, the hackers say, oh, you can have your data back, but you've got to pay whatever, 1000 bucks, 2000 I guess it depends on how important that data might be to you. I see that in Australia, they're thinking about making those ransom, cyber ransom payments illegal. So in other words, you would not be able to pay the ransom even if you were willing to. What do you think? Where do you come down on this one?
3: Hey, Al, this is a super controversial topic and one that greatly worries me. I'll tell you why. Let's, let's think this through. So let's say you're a company and your IT uh, infrastructure hasn't implemented proper backups of your data. Like, Let's say they haven't looked at it or, or let's say they have implemented backups, but the backups themselves get encrypted by the ransomware. So they're, they're unusable. And I actually have experienced this in many occasions where I've tried to help out organizations hit by ransomware, and everything, including their backups, are held hostage. So now, here's the Australian government telling you it's illegal to pay that ransomware. So are you now forced, if, if all your data is completely gone, and the only way to get it is through the ransomware because you have no valid backups, Let's say you've got 100 employees, 1,000 employees, 10,000 employees, and you rely on that data. Do you have to close your doors and say, sorry, it's illegal for us to pay that ransomware, so I guess we got to shut our doors because there's nothing else we can do. That's where part of the controversy comes into play. So I'm I'm not saying that I advocate and think that it's acceptable to be paying those ransom payments. Many people agree that, The more we pay them, the more it justifies and encourages those hackers and terrorists and and alternative, you know, governments to go out and and, and do this ransomware stuff in order to, you know, gain funds and stuff and target organizations. But, like, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of uh, some business owner or big company where that is your only possible exit is to to gamble on the payment and hope that it works so that you can restore your data and make sure everybody still has their job.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. You make a really good point. Um, Here's why, and I don't know where Australia is going to come down on this, but here's why I'm glad it's in the news and that we're talking about it today. Because, I mean, it's as easy as clicking on a bad email. That's how quickly it can happen. And you're right, the key is... To be preventative, right? To make sure your data is protected. And that's not difficult. And it doesn't have to be incredibly costly. But it is the most important thing as we talk about this because it can't happen, or it certainly becomes very difficult for it to happen if you protect your data, right? And so that's why I'm glad we're talking about it, because it's really easy to lose that data if you don't properly protect it.
3: Hundred percent, Hal. And a lot of companies have a false sense of security that the backups are being taken care of or the backups they have in place are good enough, and they don't realize that, A, they've never tested it, B, they, those backups aren't immutable, meaning they can be modified, and if they're connected to the network and the ransomware infiltrates your organization and starts to spread amongst your servers and your computers and your file servers it can encrypt and, and cause you problems even with your backups. And I've seen that repeatedly. So I really encourage a lot of people to go and review what they're doing properly for their cybersecurity stance. But let's face it, Hal, I mean, this is going to be an ongoing problem till the, till we're blue in the face. And And so what's happening is a lot of organizations right now are relying on cyber insurance policies. But I don't know if you've been paying attention to to insurance costs these days for companies it's increasing every year many of my clients their costs tripled in the last year for renewing their insurance because of the cyber security insurance policy add-on that they had because these these insurance companies are tired of doing these payouts they're like we can't continue to pay out because of your negligence on doing backups. so you you can't use this as a security blanket
0: and i think it's important too david to mention here, most people listening right now are individuals. Maybe they don't run or own a company, and they're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. But it does, right? Because people just with their own personal data, in many cases, are being held ransom. Maybe not for that great big number, but, uh, I mean, there are hackers around the world. There's a few countries where many of them are that do this 12 hours a day looking for an opportunity to make whatever money they can. So don't think that you can't be hit by this.
3: Absolutely.
0: And then they
3: exactly. I I personally have been hit twice. And the only reason I'm still okay is because I had proper backups in place. So I just deleted everything and restored from my backups. Um, But you would lose all your precious memories, your photos, your videos of your kids growing up, um, your personal, uh, you know, Personal information, your will, your tax information—like whatever it is—you you do have data that is valuable if you lost it, and you should be concerned about this.
0: Mm-hmm. I got to ask you before you go here, David. What do you make of Elon Musk and what's happening at Twitter? <laughs> um, you know, I've got fourteen or fifteen thousand followers on Twitter, so I I use it, and a lot of people in my business uh, use it. But I'm telling you, man, it it has been a soap opera right from the offer. And then him being basically forced to make the purchase for $44 billion. Some people say he paid 30 or, or 35 billion too much for it. And now he's making changes. He was going to start charging for the blue check mark and now he's not. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Could this be the end of Twitter? It certainly could. Um,
3: People are actually saying that they're be prepared for many outages uh, on the Twitter platform because of changes he'd like to implement. I mean, here's the guy who's the world's richest person worth, you know, $200 billion, purchases one of the largest social media platforms when it it comes to news updates and, and, and stuff. And he took the company, which was public, and he took it private. So now he can make any changes he wants he doesn't have to disclose these changes. And he's already talking about all these people he's firing and this code he wants to rip out and the changes he wants to. And, and, and I think what's going to happen is there's a lot of concern over amplifying more toxic content again and the hate speech and the misinformation on the platform. And, and many countries around the world are very, very worried about this because we've seen what have happened in prior political campaigns.
0: Yeah. Hey, just a a quick fun one here to end our conversation today, uh, David, and and I hope to have you back on other Tuesdays as we now, uh, you know, talk uh, technology after 1130 on Tuesdays when we can. Um, Steve Jobs, he has, did you hear about this? The late Apple founder, he had an old pair of Birkenstocks, an old pair of well-worn sandals, shoes, and they auctioned it off. Uh, these uh, sandals off, and they went for $218,750 at auction.
3: (laughs) I did hear that, and I chuckled pretty loud. Uh, I mean, but you know what? We see that with a lot of celebrities and their items, you know? I mean, you could their 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 personal underwear sells for some ridiculous price like it's just
0: crazy what's happening out there it's nuts you'd have to be a big apple person to to come up with over 200 grand for a pair of old sandals anyhow (laughs) david thanks a lot appreciate your time anytime hal